Welcome to the panel, RNZ National, Emma John and Nick Leggett with me today, Wallace Chapman here. A proposal for an overdose prevention centre in Tamaki Makaurau was announced uh, recently, a supervised space for people to use drugs. Centres like this have supervised millions of injections worldwide and the New Zealand Drug Foundation say the evidence shows these centres reduce drug harm. But some think this doesn't address fundamental issues and is a band-aid solution and that homeless people won't show up. To discuss, we have New Zealand Needle Exchange Programme National Harm Reduction Lead, Jason George. Kia ora, Jason. Kia ora. Great to have you on. And, and of course, well, you have extensive lived experience of drug use yourself. I mean, tell us your story and would a centre like this have helped you, Jason? Um, well, yes, I, I, I do have um, ex- extensive experience uh, using and, and injecting drugs. Um, and, and would a centre like this have, have helped me? Well, well yes, I mean, I've, I've actually used a centre like this mm. in Sydney. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I, I was with a friend who actually overdosed that that site, and they were able to be administered oxygen and um, and taken care of by the staff there. And this centre in Sydney was it a model that they're looking to replicate here? Um, it, it, it's similar. The, the 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 facility in Sydney is, is just a space for supervised injecting, yeah. but um, here in in uh, Tamaki Makaura. The proposal is uh, for um, a safe consumption space, which would include people using drugs in other ways. Would it save lives? Absolutely. The Needle Exchange Programme was a co-author on this proposal. If the centre was open right now, what would be the process for me? If I wanted to inject myself with drugs right now at the centre, walk me through it step by step. Well, at, at this stage, obviously, the 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 the, the, the centre is you know it's still just a proposal. But yeah. if you, if you talk about say the way it works in, in Sydney, um, as an example, uh, someone goes in to the to the front counter and they have a conversation with the person there. And they tell them what sort of drug that they're going to use today, and um, if they've used any other drugs, um, so that they have a little bit of information about them. But it's anonymous, so they don't have to provide their um, their name or anything like that um, and then they would go through into a space where they can sit down and consume their drugs and it's supervised by uh, you know health health professionals um, and sitting at staffed by nurses and peer workers and they have counselors there and so a person can use their drugs in, in a safe uh, you know environment um, and if, if anything goes wrong, then there's someone there to help. We've got a panel here with us as well, Jason, but uh, let me ask you, in terms of overseas, uh, I think there are, what, about 130 overdose prevention sites in around 14 countries. What is the evidence for these types of prevention centres? What's the research? Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, and, and again, we'll, we'll talk about Sydney, uh, they've they've reversed over six thousand overdoses there over the last twenty years. I mean that's potentially six thousand lives saved. Yeah, Emma, uh, what about you? Would you um, do you think a centre like this is a place in Aotearoa in, in the Auckland CBD? Yeah, I do. I wonder. My question is: Is there also would there also be drug counselling 
for users when they go in there or is it a completely neutral non-judgmental space yeah so that's that's a great question and and i think uh that's the the, the other way these services work so and, and again in sydney the way things work is you after you've finished consuming your drugs you can go through into a waiting space and they have um counselors available or uh, peer navigators that can help connect people with health and other social services or you can just mm-hmm. sit down and, and make a cup of tea and and have have a chat with someone that's um you know there's a listen and um can provide various sorts of health or uh, other social supports nick so Liggett, what are the services yeah keep going ever sorry oh sorry i was just going to say yeah um, Jason, finish your sentence, please. These services sort of act as a front door to connect people oh. with other health mm-hmm. and social services. So it, there's all this wraparound support that goes mm-hmm. with it. It's not just a, a centre where people go and use drugs and it's a free-for-all. It's, it's a health service, uh, first mm-hmm. and foremost, and, and a safe space for people. Nick, a three-year trial. Um, do you support it? What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, I do support it. Um, but it... What I suppose my concern is, and I'm interested to understand uh, Jason's thinking on this, is that we need that wider legal and philosophical change that treats addiction as a health issue, not a criminal one. And I know that this is probably a really important stake in the ground, but how successful if we don't have every part of the law and the health system and the support systems joined up how successful can this be in the long term? Mm. Jason? Well, I think I mean, what, what, what's been asked for is for an exemption to be made under, under the, uh, the, the existing regulations. So if, if that was done and the trial was able to go ahead, then you know, that, that would be first operating legally. Um, I think, you know, over time the, the police have been more and more supportive of harm reduction approaches, you know, the needle exchange, drug checking, I think that police support. Um, and I think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, people, you need to work with people wherever they're at. And, and, and until people are, you know, wanting to, you know, engage with treatment or that sort of thing, what, what are you going to do for them then? Okay. And so something like this is, is really a, a you know, like I say, that front door into other treatments. The front door to other uh, treatments, yeah. yeah. Kia ora, Jason. Now we're with uh, the New Zealand Needle Exchange Programme National Harm Reduction Lead, uh, Jason George. And you can well imagine there's a couple of texts come through that saying, God, my goodness me, the, this does sound truly like the ambulance at the bottom of uh, the cliff, you know, providing the space for people to go and uh, do their drugs, providing all the um, support to do that. Um, what would you say to those that ask, hey, would this encourage drug use? No, it doesn't encourage drug use. I mean, what we've got now is the, is the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. And actually what the evidence suggests is that facilities like this can actually lead to a reduction in drug use over time. So what's the next step then? You're looking at a proposal. The Ministry of Health has said they have no further plans to amend uh, the Misuse of Drugs Act, that their amendments have been successful. Now, what do you say to that? 
Um, well, I, I mean, I think that our misuse of drug facts is, is outdated and no longer fit for purpose and should be repealed and replaced. But, uh, I mean, as far as this goes, they're asking for a, a, an, a, an exemption under the, the current Act. Yeah. Hey, before you go, um, you must mention the, because it has been in the news, hasn't it, and that is fentanyl. Um, hugely responsible for huge amounts of harm, especially in the US. If that arrives on our shores, uh, overdoses will likely rise. Will a centre like this be equipped to handle uh, the likes of fentanyl, Jason? Well, this is exactly what these sort of centres, um, you know, are, are, yes, equipped for. People are able to use their drugs in a safe space instead of using them on the streets or somewhere alone where there's no-one to help. And if they overdose you know, on the streets, well, there might not be anyone there to help. If they're using drugs in a centre like this, particularly fentanyl, which is a great overdose risk, there's someone there to help and intervene if something goes wrong. So absolutely, these centres save lives. Are you surprised we, Are you surprised that hasn't been done in New Zealand? I'm getting a few texts from Sydney, uh, people who lived in Sydney. This has been in place of Sydney for, for years, Melbourne for years. No-brainer, saves lives. Are you surprised that New Zealand hasn't done it? Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, it's, uh, it's been talked about for a little while and I think, um, you know, we are behind the world in terms of some of our harm reduction approaches and so it, it's time that we do it now. Kia ora, Jason. Thank you for your time. That's Jason George, uh, the New Zealand Needle Exchange Programme National Harm uh, Reduction Lead. It is 17 past four. You're on the panel with me, Wallace Chapman, Emma John, Nick Leggett. Join me uh, this afternoon. Well, we've talked about the charges on KiwiSaver fees. The government has dumped its plan to put GST on KiwiSaver fees after a fierce backlash from the providers and opposition. Well, we've heard all about that, haven't we? Well, what about transaction fees on credit cards? They can be significant. Consumer NZ, for example, say they received a complaint this year about Air New Zealand charging a $7.10 card fee back in May. And we've all had it. Book for travel, an online ticket, and being a bit shocked at the admin fee. So what can be done on uh, what some see as unjustified surcharge payments? Now, the Commons Commission wants to know how merchants handle those fees. There is some concern that retailers are passing on more than the typical 1% to 1.5% merchant service fees, and they're doing research on the issue. With us is Head of Content at Consumer NZ, Caitlin Cherry. Kia ora, Caitlin. Explain, what are surcharges? Why do we pay them? Uh, it's, it's a really interesting and slightly complex area. So you mentioned um, people paying for online things yeah. and you know having that sort of $7.10 per person card fee added on. But there's also fees added on every time you use your credit card, debit card, or at any shop, and um, it's it's got a lot worse since we all started using PayWave and other contactless forms of payment because there's quite a lot of fees that go on top of that. Um, there's the merchant service fee, basically, and so that is what the bank charges to the merchant, the retailer, and that is made up of four different types of fees. There's the interchange fee, that's what the bank generally charges. It's a percentage of the total transaction. So that's made up of the scheme fee, uh, which is charged by the credit card, is the switch fee, which is charged by the payment network, and then there's the bank fee on top of that. So there's lots of different fees, and that's why some retailers have started sort of saying, well, 
would rather you just F-posted and they got rid of pay waves because they're oh. paying quite a lot. And some of them are then passing those fees on to uh, consumers. Well, you see, I didn't know about the breakdown. Who, know, who knows about the breakdown? Uh, Emma, have you noticed credit card fees? Is, is it something you've noticed? Yeah, definitely. I notice it when, on the odd occasion, when I'm buying movie tickets or something like that, and then they do the kind of handling fee. You know that one? That is such a cheeky little clip at the end of the transaction, isn't it? It is. It is. What about you, Nick? Ever complained about a surcharge? No, because I feel they've got you by the time if you're doing something online. You know, you've made the commitment to go in and, and, you know, you've got to the end and then you see the additional fee and you're, well, you're stuffed. But what I do get really wound up about, and I was pleased to hear Caitlin talk about it with those, with um, PayWave, you know, Mm. it's quite stunning. And I've stopped using PayWave now because, you know, 20, 40 cents per transaction. And over time, that really adds up. And we've all got you know, in this time of rising costs, we're all looking out at our at our watching our pennies. So, I do feel we're quite caught and captured by this by these fees, and well, I'm, I'm pleased they're looking into it. This is why I, I jump in here. Caitlin? There's good news on the horizon yeah. here because um, the government actually got the retail payment system bill coming to force in November, and that's going to set some caps on the fees they charge. The banks can charge for using a debit or credit card. Fantastic. So, they reckon it's going to save New Zealand businesses around $74 million because our fees are way more expensive than other countries. Um, like in Australia and the UK, the merchant, merchant service fee is less than 1% what? per transaction, but for here it can be anywhere from 1% to 4%. Oh, well, okay. That uh, seems to be unfair on the face of it. Anna, Anna and Coral Mandel says, we've had a long battle with our merchant bankers as they've raised our international credit card fees from 1.8 to 2.9% recently. Our business is going to meet the customer halfway and charge 1.8%. It's still going to be free for FPOS cards, so use those instead. So, uh, Caitlin, clearly quite an issue uh, with customers uh, there. Now, won't this simply mean that the actual prices will go up, though, if the um, Commission looks at it? If they decide no, because to... this is looking at what the banks are able to ah. charge, and the system has not had any kind of regulation. So, effectively, we've got banks in a situation where they've made massive profits, record profits, in the last uh, few months, and yet they're passing on quite a lot of costs to merchants. The smaller merchants are the ones that suffer the most, ah. and often they pass it on well, they have to really pass yeah. it on to consumers. And this is a time when people are really struggling with cost of living. You know, everything is costing a lot more at the moment. And we've also all been told we should be making contactless payments because of COVID. Mm. So we're kind of, on the one hand, encouraged to use this system, yet we, there's no real regulation in place to ensure that it's, it's fair and equitable across all the parties involved. Yeah, um, Mm. uh, interesting because uh, Jonathan Milne did an interesting piece in Newsroom about this as well. He cited a few uh, examples as well. You know, uh, in New Zealand charges $2.80 per leg for a card payment fee. You've got Jetstar says it charges $5 to $12.50 per booking. Uh, You've got Ticket Tech, they'll charge a $5.50 handling fee. You've got iTicket on, it goes on and on and on. I guess the the issue was this, that... um, Many of us didn't know about this uh, uh, fee on uh, charges on the KiwiSaver fee. But a lot of people really don't think about those everyday fees that we um, get charged day by day by day by day when we use our cards. And they would add up. 
possibly to thousands across a year. Yeah, it's a real lack of transparency around it. You are actually meant to be told if there is a surcharge on top of what you're paying, and often it will be on that screen when you're paying, you know, your pay wave it might incur an additional fee. I, after doing um, a bit of a deep dive into this issue today, I actually had to go to the chemist, and I, I did an FPOS payment because I had no idea if they were passing on the payment to me or sucking it up themselves. And, uh, you know, again, that's the lack of transparency around this mm. whole area. Mm. Has it made you look into your uh, st- statements, Emma? Um, no, no. <laughs> you just, you see, just, 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 I just, I was thinking just about all it. the times I've just. You look, just if you've got it. ski gloves on, you know you've got ski gloves on, and you've got your helmet and all of that, and all your garb. You know, you're not getting that little card out, are you? You're just tapping and going. You can't even see what's on the screen. You see, this is the problem, eh, Caitlin? We're blase like Emma John. Well, that's true, actually. I was thinking about this today as well, because, you know, when you used to slide your card through, you'd actually have to have a look and you'd hit, you know, check, and then you'd hit, Mm -hmm. you know, OK or whatever, Um, and you'd sort of see that you had been charged $28. And, um, you know, someone could probably charge me $280 (laughs) and they wouldn't notice. Not that I'm saying anyone would, but it's interesting how blasé we have become, as you say. Okay, so uh, final thoughts, uh, Caitlin, is that um, watch this space, something might be happening. Exactly. And the Commerce Commission is taking a look, as you said, uh, into how merchants handle these transaction fees and they're going to potentially have the power to to act if they think that some of the fees are unfair. Very good. Thank you for that. That is uh, Kate Cherry, Head of Content at Consumer NZ. Uh, you're on the panel, uh, NZ National. Now, by the way, we've had, I guess, our um, biggest story in terms of the feedback has been student debt. Whether or not we should follow the lead of President Joe Biden and forgive, I think he's calling it debt forgiveness, uh, and why should students be singled out for debt forgiveness? Anyway, Kevin says, Kia ora, Wallace. I've got no problem with the government cancelling student loans where the students have made full payment or attempt of payment, but the interest charged means that the debt is still significant or equal to what was originally borrowed. Students who have made no effort to pay or have reneged in the obligation should have arrest warrants or debts registered in their names, preventing them from going overseas. Uh, Teresa in Napier says, please, oh, please cancel my debt. My 20, cancel student debt rather. My 23-year-old daughter lives in a tiny flat in Wellington with standard but expensive water and power bills that disable her from going out with friends and actually having a life. She owes $60,000. We'll be paying it off for the rest of her life. How can we expect our kids to pay this? When I went to university, it cost me nothing. So we discussed that uh, after uh, 4.30. Meanwhile, though, I wanted um, your comments, uh, Emma and Nick, on this. So a comment uh, caught our eye. In fact, I think it was David Farrier who uh, tweeted this. A person living in shared accommodation was left fuming that someone had taken his laundry out of the washing machine and guess what? Dumped it on top of the dryer. Is that acceptable? And indeed, what if someone in the office takes your lunch out of the microwave? Is it the height of rudeness or actually is it quite within the boundaries? Nick, 
You'd get, you'd be fuming. You'd be seething if someone did that to you, huh? Uh, no, I think I've got other concerns in my life, to be honest. I mean, if if you're not there to get your washing out of the, the the washing machine or your food out of the microwave, and somebody does it for you, I mean, all power to them, really. If they if Isn't they're it in a hurry. Passive aggressive? Isn't it passive aggressive? No, I, I find notes passive aggressive. But if 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 you're holding, if your clothes or food are holding up the use of the machine for the next person because you're not present, then I think they're within the bounds to to do that. But it's it's it's. Uh... It's a despoliation of your own property, isn't it? This is your wet clothing. Someone else's hands, Emma, John, has been all over your clothing, and they've taken the liberty to not want to wait or have to wait mm, seven minutes, eight minutes, ten minutes um, to well, just f- have the cycle well, finish. What do you think? I mean, you, well, he used emotive language, didn't he? He said dumped. What about placed? Yeah. And if the person placed the laundry on top of... I, what I assume was a clean dryer, then that's perfectly normal. And actually, I would say I feel sorry for the person that had to handle his wet washing, even though it was clean. It's still that's still a gross feeling to have to pick up all of his stuff to get it out of the washing machine and place it on top of the dryer. That's just, just as Nick said, that's it. just systematic. Yeah. Uh, and if you're that sensitive about it, why don't you hang around and wait for that spin cycle to finish? Well, I do know that this would be, because this is a, this is a, when I lived in a flat, this was a real problem. Uh, people taking my stuff out of the washing machine wet and dumping it. I totally, if it was, <laughs> I, I totally agree with David Ferry. I was just absolutely fuming that someone would be so entitled uh, to do such a thing. But here I find that both uh, you and Nick just, again, a blase attitude. Don't even care about it. <laughs> That person's reading too much into it, and they should probably consider a laundry service, if I'm honest. Mm. And better timekeeping. <laughs> Absolutely. Just set a timer. That's what I do. All right. On my, you know. Okay. And in terms of the microwave in the office, uh, Emma, your lunch is in, you go to the bathroom, you come out, and someone else, not you, has taken your lunch out of the microwave. Well, that's fine. As long as they haven't eaten it. <laughs> I would say just yeah. say thank you. Oh, there All it right. is. Yep. Same principle, go. yeah. Okay. Exactly. Oh, oh, God. Imagine, though, what about people that microwave reheat up fish Ooh. in the office? Whole other. Um, every <laughs> right to take drying washing out of the dryer. Have you ever tried using a laundrette in uh, London? Uh, thank mm. you very much for your responses this afternoon. You're on the panel with me, Wallace Chapman. I am with Nick Leggett and Emma John this afternoon.